Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 20 of Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with reviews, critics, and criticism. It's uh, with equal mixture pleasure and regret that I have to tell you that episode 20 is the last in the current series of Reads Like a Four. Um, I've really appreciated talking to so many exciting critics and writers over the last few months, uh, but I've decided to uh, call time on it temporarily uh, to make sure that the future guests are varied and compelling. Uh, I'm finding that I'm running up against myself trying to get good guests every week, uh, and also a couple of of, uh, of decent guests we had lined up have had to pull out for various reasons so I'm going to put, hit pause on it and uh, basically uh, pull together some interesting and diverse critics uh, for the future series. Um, we're specifically looking in future episodes for more critics of colour, LGBTQI writers and critics, food and restaurant critics, literary and book critics, influential zine writers, artists who engage with, have been bolstered by or negatively impacted by reviews and also people who are heavily involved with reviews that don't necessarily write them. Uh, TripAdvisor, Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, Food Hygiene Inspectors, Ofsted, why not? I'm looking at all of you. Uh, if you would like to be on a future episode and you fit the bill, please contact me at readslike at gmail.com. To celebrate the end of this series, uh, this is a very special episode entitled uh, What Have We Learned? Uh, where I look back over previous episodes and we pull together some highlights from episodes 1 to 19 uh, to try and draw some themes, to try and identify some issues with journalism and generally just to uh, to see what a lot of these writers have in common and what they feel differently about. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, then thank you. Firstly, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you'd like to support us and uh, help us get to that second series, help us cover our costs, etc., you can now buy a Reads Like a Four mug. That's right, we've moved into merchandise. So if you head to tinyurl.com slash reads like a mug, you'll find our critically acclaimed mug, which will only be made if we get enough orders in uh, and will never be repeated. So if you'd like to support independent journalism, I guess, um, and make sure that we can uh, talk to far more people in a second series, it's tinyurl.com slash reads like a mug. While I'm on the hardcore plugging, uh, if you ever wish this podcast had four more voices and was more about Alan Partridge than journalism, why not try my other podcast, Monkey Tennis, the Alan Partridge fan podcast. Uh, it's available at all the places you get reads like a four from. Uh, you can even take it further and watch us record Monkey Tennis live in Bristol, Manchester or London this September. Uh, in London, we even have actor Stephen Mangan, who you'll know from episodes, Green Wing, I'm Alan Partridge and many more as our special guest. Uh, info and tickets for that are available at monkeytennispod.com. 
If you wish this podcast was more like a sweaty dive venue where mosh pit hits from the turn of the millennium are played at ear-splitting volume to people who got in for free, then try my club night last resort. It's happening in London on September the 1st at uh, uh, the Star of Kings in King's Cross and in Bristol at Bristol Exchange on October the 13th. Uh, all the details are at facebook.com slash lastresortclub. It's also on Twitter and Instagram at lastresortclub. Uh, and finally, if you wish this podcast was just more like me, complaining and getting overexcited about records in equal measure, then why not try my own Twitter at Adam Nonfiction? Uh, I will be there between series of Reads Like a Four, uh, and you can keep up to date with any other shit that I'm up to. Um, so, before we get into this final episode, uh, just one more thanks to all of the critics who I've spoken to, and also very much to you guys for listening. Um, it's been a real pleasure speaking to uh, influential and exciting critics about the past and future of journalism. Uh, more of that after the uh, theme tune. But uh, here we go. The last in the series of Reads Like a Four, episode 20. What have we learned? Reads like I am entertainment director at Shortlist Magazine. I've been deputy music editor of The Guardian. Uh, I'm the executive editor at Pitchfork. I, I moved to uh, Esquire five years ago to, to join their um, digital team as deputy digital editor and then um, was made digital editor, a few, digital editor a few years later, which is the role I'm still in now. Uh, I've written for Sight and Sound, uh, Vice, ID... Flip Paint, mm-hmm. The Quietus, Enemy, The Guardian, mm-hmm. Bristol Live Mag, yeah. Bristol 24 7, um, a Bust Magazine, oh, yeah. uh, Noisy, um, Sight and Sound Magazine, Variety, Dazed, The Fader, New Statesman. I am, um, what am I? <laughs> I'm Entertainment Director of Heat Magazine. Reads Like a Four, at its core, set out to speak to as many different writers as possible to answer questions that I had around journalism, cultural criticism, music, art, TV, film, literature, and so on. Questions like, uh, what's the purpose or worth of journalism uh, in 2018, uh, now that the internet's around, now that you've got social media, now that you can hear a record around the same time you can read the first review of it, now that you get aggregated reviews, user-led reviews, uh, and so on. Uh, Has that changed how important journalism is to people uh, and to journalists even? What skills do you need to create good journalism? What makes a good journalist? What are the issues that make it all the way through to the page because uh, bad sub-editors or bad training hasn't drummed them out of young writers? Um, Is journalism art or is it just there to discuss art? Um, These are just some of the questions that we set out to answer uh, in the first series of this podcast. Uh, And we'll be going into some detail and looking back at some of the episodes now to uh, determine some of the answers to those questions. One question I put to several guests is whether journalism is art itself or whether uh, cultural criticism uh, and journalism of that kind is really just there to comment on art and to uh, try and describe whether or not it's done its job properly. Um, You're going to hear from Charlie Lyne, filmmaker and uh, star of episode four uh, with his views, followed by uh, Nancy Durant from The Times uh, about what she thinks the purpose of a review is and uh, to what extent it can be considered art in its own right. I mean, to me, a review or any uh, criticism is uh, just art in and of itself. Um, so I really see no distinction between 
um, a piece of writing that notionally reviews a film and the way that a film is consciously or unconsciously responding to however many works of art that came before it. Um, I think it's all part of a kind of endless uh, building on the shoulders of giants type lineage. Um, and so I really, yeah, I really don't see any kind of um, distinction between uh, criticism and any other kind of art. You know, when you're writing for a national audience and not a, speci not a specific or not a, not a specialised audience, so not writing for, you know, they're not buying it because it's a music magazine, they're not buying it because it's, you know, Art Monthly or whatever. Um, you, you need to be, and it's, a, and it's, you know, a national audience that's very wide geographically. You need to be mindful that what you're covering are things that people might have tried to travel to had they the means mm -hmm. you know that they would you know they will go to Picasso at the Tate or at least they will really want to you know they'll go and see um, Damien Lewis in in a in a David Mamet play at the, in the West End if they can afford it and if they you know they will really want to do that and if they and the other thing is a lot of these things are quite expensive the big stuff is expensive you need to tell people whether or not they should get the babysitter get the train get the overnight stay you know get the ticket um, it's a service, you know, that you're providing and the service is to the reader and not to the artist. Talking about music reviews, Mark Richardson from Pitchfork saw things slightly differently uh, and spoke a little bit about the difference between the purpose a review serves in 2018 versus the purpose it served when he started writing for the site back in 1998. The biggest change um, with reviews, especially in that time, and it's clear, too, from the content of the reviews, is that 20 years ago, reviews were still written from the perspective of what am I going to spend money on? Um, and there was always an element in writing them of the consumer guide part of it just worked a little bit differently because people still looked at reviews as something that I want to catch up on and, and, and read before I go to the record store because I want to see if I'm going to spend $15 on a CD, mm -hmm. I want to... I want to be sure that it's, that it's decent. And um, in 1998, uh, it, it was 1998, uh, weirdly, was one of the last years where that, that was vir true for virtually everybody. A year later was Napster. And so if you had, you know, broadband access, um, you could start downloading things for, for free the, the next year. But in 1998, it really was a matter of um, looking to reviews to find out things that you might want to spend money on. Mm -hmm. And... I remember pers myself, uh, and I think this is fairly common, I used to carry around in my wallet a list of records that I had read about that looked interesting so that when I was in the record store, I could go through and see what see what was there, see what was I could find used or, or whatever. So I'd have a list of 20 or 30 records, most of which I had built from, from reading magazines and zine reviews, and, and I'll see something as like, this looks, looks like something I would like. Um, and I think the connection then between the record review as a form and a way of, you know, people using it as, to, as how they they would spend money was, was pretty strong. And I think in the years since there's still a matter of how you want to spend time. But I think, um, I think the record review in some ways it's a positive thing actually, but I think the record review in the time since has become more about deepening someone's understanding of the record mm -hmm. itself and less about um, buy this or don't buy this. 
The subject of gripes came up a lot uh, across the 19 episodes I recorded so far. Uh, sometimes gripes with the industry and working practices, sometimes more gripes with uh, the way that bad reviews are written and, and make it out there. Um, so issues that various guests had. Uh, Laura Williams uh, was particularly down on sub-editors editing headlines, uh, possibly because uh, she once had uh, the entire gist of a review changed by an inaccurate headline. Um, Writing for free uh, is an issue that came up a few times, especially when the outlet you're writing for then syndicates that content out and makes money off your free work. Um, synopses as reviews, this is one that Charlie Line brought up um, when a film is literally described and that is acting as a review rather than there being any sort of critical analysis of the work itself. Uh, and he did say that sometimes his own films have received uh, reviews that are very positive, but they're not worth much because it's literally just outlining what happens and uh, not really going into any depth. Um, one I wanted to delve back into is actually going back to Mark Richardson who was the uh, executive editor at Pitchfork uh, at the time that this was uh, recorded uh, he's got some specifics that particularly annoy him when it comes to music reviews one is I mean this is this is very specific but um, I think the one thing I always cut when I'm editing a review is if someone talks about um, talks about a record and says that it the album cover reminds them, it captures something about it. You know, it's okay, like, it's some, yeah. just like it's, you know, if they say, uh, you know, just, just like it's cover, it's washed out and color, you know, dreamy and da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, I can tell you're writing this review and this cover is sitting on your desk or it's on, on your laptop screen and you're, you're struggling for something to think about. And also, wouldn't it be more notable if the cover was completely at odds with the music? Yes. Like surely that's, yeah. it's meant it's, it literally yeah. is a visual representation on yeah. account of it's the cover. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and there's another very common thing where someone says the first track sets the tone, da 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 da, mm -hmm. and it's like, why? Why wouldn't the first track yeah. set the tone? You know, it's you like know, that's how is the fifth track going to get a chance to yeah. set the tone? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, I mean, the the worst the worst thing that I, gosh, I hope it almost never happens on Pitchfork is when people review a record by basically just going song by song and saying, mm -hmm. you know, it starts with this and then comes this and then comes this and then. And I always want to say, well, take a step back and you're, you're reviewing an album that exists as a whole. Let's talk about the whole and you can talk about how the details support the whole rather than just going through detail to detail, piling up all these observations about how songs sound. I mean, these days, especially, um, you really don't need to go into you don't need to narrate um, how, how how songs go. You know, this comes in then the bridge then it builds to this climax. Mm -hmm. It's like. I, I can listen to it if I want to, you know, it's like, I want to hear your ideas about what, what this music is doing. You don't have to explain to me, you know, what happens after the chorus kicks in. Something else that came up as a frequent topic was representation. Uh, and I mean that word in, in two ways, I suppose. Um, we had a lot of conversations across the podcast about uh, the representation of political views and of sort of ethical standpoints and moral viewpoints and to what extent they belong in a review of a film or a TV uh, show or a record. Um, the general consensus seeming to be that it's important that these points come across, but that they are allowed to do so in a natural way or they come across in the context of a review rather than the review itself being an excuse to bash you over the head with a particular viewpoint. Um, something that came up in the episode with Christopher Hooten uh, from The Independent was uh, the issue of politics and, uh, and viewpoints being sort of bluntly used in the art itself that's being reviewed. Um, 
that there are films that are so about one particular issue that it actually uh, kind of muddies the waters in terms of its value as a film, as something to be watched, enjoyed and, and interpreted. Um, but in terms of representation, in terms of the extent to which uh, kind of political viewpoints or ethical viewpoints um, are represented in reviews, uh, it was probably best expressed in the episode, episode six with Guardian Deputy Music Editor Laura Snapes. Music has always been the way that I've actually ever learned anything about the world. I don't have a degree. I don't have any kind of deep specialist knowledge in any other areas. But every every the way that I've seen the world has been pieced together through music. Like one example I often come back to is when Sufjan Stevens made the BQE, an instrumental album about a weird bit of road in New York, which led me to learn a lot about um, the racist planning of New York City in the like 20th century, which is something I would never have learned about otherwise. So music is both. Music is my filter of how I see the world, so it's kind of inevitable that what I think about uh, the world and social dynamics and gender and class and race and things like that will be filtered through music. And also, this is something that I've always thought from a very young age. Um, when you're a young woman uh, writing about music or writing about anything and you're, you know, you reach a certain level of people knowing who you are, people always want you to write about being a feminist and about feminist issues, which obviously those things are really important. But I always think that that work is stronger when your values just come through in the work that you want to do rather than like climbing up a mountain and putting a big feminist flag in it and being like, these are my views on this. I prefer my views about the world to just be evident from what I write about. Of course, representation also refers to the diversity of voices writing about art. Who are the critics uh, and how well do they represent uh, British society at large? It's something that came up in episode 18 with Sam Parker from Esquire, uh, obviously a site that caters primarily to male uh, readers online, at least, uh, and in print. Um, and it's something that extends to this podcast as well. You'll notice the majority of guests on this series have probably been straight white men, and so is the presenter. Uh, and it's something that I'm looking to improve on in future series, and I'm certainly very keen to to hear from a more diverse range of critics. Um, moving on to another topic that's come up across many of the episodes in this series, the interplay between journalists and celebrities. Um, there is some interesting chat on both Laura Snape's and Peter Robinson's episodes, uh, specifically uh, about Ed Sheeran uh, and a little bit about Morrissey as well. Both of them came up in terms of coverage given uh, and in Ed's case, in terms of his reactions to that coverage as well. So I encourage you to check both of those episodes out. You're now going to hear from Peter Robinson of Pop Justice fame, followed by Chris Mandel at Shortlist, uh, a little bit about the relationship between journalists and uh, musicians specifically uh, and later film stars as well. Uh, Peter in particular has something to say about a tip he gives uh, during media training to pop stars uh, in terms of their relationship with journalists. We'll see. But one, actually one interesting thing that I do say to people um, which is sort of relevant, relevant to reviews um, when I'm doing sort of media training stuff is uh, if, you, if you do an interview with somebody or even if you think they might be reviewing you uh, just follow them on Twitter, because when it comes to negative reviews, one of the big sort of comments that you get, or tweets that you get, or general sort of statements about journalists or whatever, is well, you wouldn't say that to their face. And I mean, I'd like to think that if some if something was really bad, that I would say it to their face. Mm. But equally, if you know an artist is following you on Twitter, you kind of have that in the back of your head when you are writing. You're saying it a little bit to their face. It's kind case. of their face. And you know they're following you, and so you know it'll be on their timeline, and you're going, this is shit. I think, not everybody, maybe I'm just a weak human being, <laughs> maybe I just crave approval, but I think a lot of people would be a little bit kinder to an artist if they knew that 
they were going to see it. And also, most journalists want to be friends with pop stars. One of the things we say when we're putting someone on the cover is we like this person because they have something to say. So you, they need to be want to talk to us. Um, there was a cover. I probably shouldn't name who it is because I might get in trouble. But there was a public. There was a cover we were going to do last year that we pulled because they rejected five different pitches for a concept. They wanted to wear their own clothes. They wanted to be shot. They wanted to decide who the photographer was. They wanted like half an hour to just grab some pictures, like portraiture, which we don't really do that much. And the, it was getting so frustrating that we said, I think what you want and what we do are incompatible. And I think you'd actually be better going to another publication. Um, didn't go down very well because nobody wants to get sort of dumped like that. But um, there was also there was a musician last year who, again, I probably can't name because we are reopening discussions with them at the moment. But okay. they wanted a cover and it was like, you can get a 10 minute shoot and can you do the interview on the phone? And we just I said, no, I said, I don't think it's asking a lot for this person to do an hour. And bearing in mind that even before I worked there, you know, we shot Kendrick Lamar a few years ago. We've done this in terms of musicians. Like the, we do get high-profile people, and we often say, "Well, if he'll sit down for an hour, anyone less famous should want to do it." And and like so, we kind of I wasn't happy with this. I, w- I wasn't happy with the idea of a phone chat because I want to know what this person looks like in the flesh because our readers want to know that, and I want to know what his eye contact is like. I want to know where he looks. I want to know what his hair's like up close because we are going to be sitting next to someone our readers won't get to sit next to. And I really like telling that to people that this is this is what their posture's like and this is what they smell like because that's the sort of stuff I'd want to know if I met someone, you know? So we kind of pulled this musician because it was like a case of you're not willing to do the work that other people do. And if we start letting people on the cover with 10 minutes it undermines all the people that put an hour in or two hours in, in some cases. So we have standards that you should always be malleable, but um, we do have rules. Another thing I've noticed is that the passage of time moves very strangely when you're talking about journalism. Um, we've spoken to people who have freelanced for countless outlets. Um, we've also spoken to a lot of people, surprisingly perhaps, who've been writing for the same place for 15 to 20 years. Uh, lots of lifers, if you like. Um, but also, during just the period that this podcast has been going out, The Enemy has gone out of print uh, after, I think, 60 plus years. Um, one of our guests has left the outlet that he worked for for, for 20 years. Uh, another of our guests has launched a brand new magazine. So uh, sometimes things move fast, but also some things are a constant. For example, shitty slash cheeky practices in journalism. Uh, here's Peter Robinson with a good example of that from the quote unquote glory days of the NME. <laughs> I was on Facebook today, obviously I was supposed to be transcribing something and I was on Facebook and uh, there was one of my friends who used to be in a band saying that, um, and this is pertinent to the review angle, he was saying that um, but one, one enemy review of one of his band singles was so bad that it effectively ended his career right. um, and he mentioned that he later found out that it was so bad because the writer had had an argument with his girlfriend that day. And then another friend replied saying that his band had been given an awful review for their performance at the Reading Festival, um, which he found strange because his label head, on the way back to uh, 
of the, on the way back to London saw the guy who wrote the review waiting for the train to the festival at Paddington while the band were on stage. Ah. So, I mean, you know, Enemy was... We've got there is a review written because somebody was pissed off and a review written when somebody wasn't there. Um, all I'm saying is the Enemy glory days weren't always glorious. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The changing face of journalism came up a lot over the last 19 episodes, uh, specifically how the internet has obviously hugely changed things. Um, as we heard earlier from Mark Richardson, the purpose of reviews themselves is different to what it was in a pre-internet age. I asked Observer film critic Simran Hans what she thinks is missing from modern journalism. Oh, where to begin? Hmm. Um, I guess what's missing is rigour. I think uh, a lot of reviews are kind of people writing about something having made like a very quick judgment um about whether they think a film is good or bad or worthwhile or not worthwhile and kind of um being the fastest to kind of get their take and get their kind of correct take out in the world um and i think what we really need is just more engagement with with the work itself um so that would be, I think, my my main problem with it. Because when I talk to students about students who want to be critics and, and students who ask me about um, writing and, and particularly about writing reviews, I always say that you should be trying to evaluate a film on the basis of what it's doing and whether it's doing it well. So is this film succeeding at what it's trying to do or um, or is it failing? And why? That's what's interesting. Not is this a good movie or is this a bad movie? I mean, like maybe that's enough if you're talking about it with your friends. But if you're actually trying to engage with the work, then I think you just need to um, ask a slightly different set of questions. 
I also spoke to several critics, several of them uh, primarily working in print, about the decline of print journalism. Everyone's agreed it's in decline, but there's also a belief that uh, long-form writing online is yet to be as enjoyable or easy to consume. Uh, listen to episode 18 with Esquire Sam Parker for more on that. Um, and there could be a future for it as a more deluxe, less regular product, uh, sort of in the way that vinyl has seen a resurgence in uh, recorded music. You can hear more about that in the episode with Stuart Stubbs, editor of Loud and Quiet. On a similar topic, here is Merlin Alderslade, editor of Metal Hammer magazine, talking about the risk of uh, print mags going beyond their remit. You know, there's, I don't think there's any ironclad winning formula to keeping a magazine uh, successful in the modern climate beyond just playing to your strengths. And in some cases, that's making sure you cater to a dedicated audience. In some cases, that might be experimenting a bit more. But I do think that in times like these where print is, is struggling, I think what you don't want to do is start just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, that's, that's never a good sign to me personally, where if you, if, if you pick up a magazine, no matter if it's a music magazine, film magazine, whatever, um, and you don't feel you quite understand what it stands for and what it's covering and what it's kind of reason for being is, uh, to me, that's a problem. And that's representative of a magazine that doesn't really understand what it's, what it's there for. Another topic that came up quite regularly is uh, the constricting of space, uh, the fact that there is less money going around for people to write uh, and also less space in the case of print media uh, for them to write in um, and whether this leads to people eventually writing more about the things that they absolutely love and want to champion and whether that's a good thing uh, because it's uh, it's more positive and it encourages people to go and check out new things or whether actually there needs to be more space for negative criticism. Uh, obviously, people do love a hatchet job and so uh, those pieces do tend to get huge readerships but uh is is it the case that actually they're in decline now and that uh, if you're given a, you know the opportunity to only write about one record you are going to choose to talk about one that you that you love and thinks deserves a wider audience um here's sammy main uh, managing editor of goldflake paint and freelance writer for the likes of bust noisy and more um talking about the importance of a personal connection in reviews and the importance of championing things that you love so when i'm writing reviews i think my purpose is to like obviously tell people what it's like, but also to find a personal connection that someone else might find as well mm -hmm. and connect with them on that level because there is the argument of like um, objectivity, subjectivity, like not get too close to it. You can't be a good critic unless you're kind of a bystander almost. Mm -hmm. But the way that I have always reviewed is heavily personal which I don't know if it makes me a very bad critic well, I was gonna say I was saving this for later on but I was gonna say one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you for this podcast is because it feels like the reviews you write and and others write especially on Goldflake Paint yeah. feel quite different to so-called traditional yeah. reviews in that a they're quite long form yeah. b they're frequently quite personal and yeah. c they're usually championing something that yeah. like you or other writers are, are really into and you and artists i would say are usually in need of more people discovering them like, yeah there's not a lot of kind of redundant reviews that you could find a similar thing elsewhere regurgitated press releases yeah i yeah. wonder like i was going to say like is that the, is that the intentional ethos of the site is that yeah. but there's something you've always done as well right yeah totally i think that's since I've been more involved in it as like managing editor for like over a year now, 
I think it's like heavily influenced my writing in terms of how I approach things, even for different publications. Mm -hmm. But that's always been the intention behind Goldfeather Paint is to champion stuff that isn't being championed elsewhere. Like we do include, you know, we review like Lord or whatever because we love it. Yeah. So like first and foremost, it is stuff we cover that we love, but also it is to like help underrepresented bands and artists to get a small platform. And here's the Independence online editor, Christopher Hooten, talking about uh, his views on positive versus negative coverage. And for like many reasons, people will often now gravitate more towards stuff they're inclined to like and, you know, to sing the praises of. Um, personally, I think I just have a kind of healthy interest where I do want to sing the praises of a lot of stuff, but also I do get very passionate about wanting to kind of keep in check uh you know some of the so film is my, my biggest one i write about tv a lot as well but um i'm there definitely very interested in kind of like taking to task all the big kind of tentpole movies i think there's like a real responsibility to do that like often you know i, I really want to champion small films that i think uh deserve to get get out there because it's so hard to do now you know they're desperate for people to be writing about them and talking about them so they can actually fill cinemas or land a vod deal and similarly there's there's a kind of a weird trend at the moment for people, I think, overpraising big kind of studio movies in almost a sort of a semi-ironic way where it's become cool to give the latest, uh, you know, The Rock film five stars or whatever. And I love The Rock, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But it's, that's kind of strange to me. And I think all just because, the, you know, the, the, the politics are right of the big Marvel movie or whatever. And I think someone needs to come in and be like, guys, like, <laughs> You're being marketed to here, and let's not like all completely lose our shit over this film. I think it's cliched and overdone to describe any industry as being in a state of flux. So let me instead say this. It's been really heartening to hear so many differences of opinion with regards to the future of journalism, uh, what the issues are, uh, and it's one thing I hope all this series guests would agree on, is that the more diverse, vibrant, spirited and honest cultural criticism is able to become, the more compelling and interesting, relevant and vital it will be to the people that it ultimately should serve, the readers. So whether you're like me and uh, an active fan with uh, occasional dabbling in arts journalism, a student of it, someone who was just keen to discover how magazines and sites were set up, or indeed a journalist yourself, uh, eavesdropping on conversations with your uh, rivals or contemporaries, thank you so much for listening to this series of Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with critics, reviews and cultural criticism. We'll hopefully be back before too long with series two, but thanks again for listening and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.